Welcome to episode 93 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman, Jordan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Marsha Links Quayley in Rabat. And we're very excited to have a guest on this episode. Um, with us today from Cairo is writer, illustrator, and graphic novelist Dina Mohammed to talk about um, her lovely groundbreaking graphic novel, Shubek Lubek, which um, is just coming out in English translation from Pantheon Books. Um, so thank, thank you so you much for, for joining me. us. Yes, thanks, Dina. Thanks so much for making well, the time. So exciting to talk to you about yes. this. And I just want to say for people who don't know her, Dean Mohammed is an Egyptian author, illustrator, and designer who came to wide attention when she started making comics at 18 with her, in her words, semi-satirical, semi-sincere webcomic Qahira about a visibly Muslim Egyptian superhero who tackles social issues such as Islamophobia and misogyny and sometimes literally tackles them. <laughs> Her graphic novel trilogy, Shubek Lubek, is an urban fantasy about wishes. In Arabic, it won the Best Graphic Novel and Grand Prize Award at the Cairo Comics Festival of 2017. And the English translation of the whole trilogy is coming out as a single book from Pantheon and Granta, I believe in January 2023. Yes, January 10th. She's participated in a number of... January 10th, so exciting. It's only sad that you can't get it as a holiday gift for people, but you could print out a little thing saying, I am <laughs> getting you this book and it will come January 10th. Yes, that, that should totally work. Okay, I just the only other thing I wanted to say about her is that you can find her online at dinadraws.art, A-R-T. Thank you, Dina. Thank you again. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, and we're... So I, We're I think very fortunate yes. to have actually received um, the hard copies of this this work because it is like a delight um, to leaf through, and so that's been I've, we've been looking forward to talking with you, and um, it's been like a real pleasure to for me at least to peruse this book. Yeah, it's so important. I think to the, the hardcover because to me um graphic novels are something I read again and again and I like to share them around as well sometimes they fall apart uh the Arabic is is well put together but it's you know uh, whatever it's paperback and so you know I have to be I didn't want to share it for instance with my kids but this I, I let you know my my son take to bed um, and and it's still in actually that's really funny to me because to me I I wanted the Arabic ones to kind of have this sort of newspapery, very like um, I don't know mass printed quality. So I actually feel like the Arabic is is more handleable mm. because even when it falls apart, it feels like it was kind of meant to fall apart. It already has this very newspapery <laughs> paper. Um, I wanted it to have like the feel of, of old comics that were sort of printed and, and you could tell even when they had printing mistakes, it sort of added to the feeling of reading a comic mm. because I knew it would have printing problems given how printing works in Egypt. Um, so it's funny that you say that just because for me, actually, I treat the Arabic books, you know, like, I don't know, like I have them all over my desk. I scribble all over them. I feel like they're so much more editable, but the English with the hardcover it's so much like I carry it so reverently. <laughs> Maybe because I only have I only have the one <laughs> copy, but I actually feel like a hardcover in some ways is more fragile. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just because mm. the Arabic is cheaper as well, so I can just buy more of it. 
<laughs> well, lucky for you, if I were living in Cairo, maybe I could get That's infinite true. numbers yeah. of them. But uh, So I think for people who have not yet read any of the Shubek Lubeks, it would be great if you could give just an overview, not necessarily of the plot, but of the the universe that we're inhabiting um, that's sort of an over, you know, as an urban fantasy, sort of an overlay on contemporary, mostly Cairo, but also other places. Yes, of course. Um, So Shubiklubik is a graphic novel that takes place in a world where you can buy and sell wishes. And the main premise is like the more expensive a wish is, the more likely it is to fulfill your desire. So for example, if you buy a first class wish for a million dollars, it will give you exactly what you want. But if you buy a third class wish for like 500 Egyptian pounds, it works like a monkey's paw. So it tricks you. The example I always give like is if you wish to lose weight, your arms and legs would fall off. Um, and that's kind of the overarching premise of this world is that wishes are for sale and they're treated like commodities. But the actual plots of the books is that there is um, an owner of a Cairo Kushk, it's like a corner store kiosk, and he has three first class wishes that he doesn't want to use or sell because he believes wishes are haram, like religiously impermissible. And because he's in debt, he decides to sell them at a huge discount. And so the book in English is divided into three sections. In Arabic, it was published as three separate parts, but each part is about who buys each wish from Shokri's kiosk. Um, and that's that's sort of like the, the overarching premise of Shabri Klubrik. I think we can get into a little more detail about each part, hopefully without spoilers. Um, but yeah, it's it's basically mm. about wishes for sale, right? But and then also, you, I mean, there is a sort of a layer also of the sort of international politics of it, right? The wishes are mined more in in uh, in countries. I don't know of what you would say, you know, previously colonized nations, whereas the people who are profiting off the wishes are largely in you know so there's also this sort of international aspect of of how wishes work so there's class aspects within egypt but also yeah i would say this was part of the world building i i don't know how relevant it is to each of the plots except it it kind of shows in how each character interacts with the world so the way wishes are manufactured is that essentially they're naturally occurring resources in this novel um they are like jinn, but it's never discussed that way because the whole point is that they've been commodified to the point that they don't have any sort of personality. I think most wish stories, the genies play a very central part in them. So the genies always have personalities. The genies are always mm. a big part of every story. And when I was thinking of the story, I wanted to, to think of it as a, a story about wishes where there are no genies at all. The genies are products. They don't have a voice in the story. So in that aspect, like you kind of know that the genies are extracted from like naturally occurring wish mines, um, and they mostly occur in the Middle East and like the regions where I would say folklore about genies has always existed. Um, and the process of like re- refining and bottling them yeah. and sort of like that that kind of industrialization happens mostly overseas there's an entirely like alternate history that's put in the infographics in the books um and it's i think it was like mainly for my own indulgence it's not it it is part of the construction of the world and it is 
it is relevant, I think, when you see these characters interact with wishes. So, for example, the, the poorer characters don't really know much about wishes. They don't know much about how to navigate that world. They don't know how to make a wish. They're tricked by third-class wishes. Whereas the richer characters who have access to like a foreign education actually do know a lot about wishes, and they know how they would potentially make the best wish for their situation. They, they understand more of that world. Um, and I think you mostly see it just in how the characters interact with the world. So I guess you might see it in how some characters are a little more knowledgeable about wishes and some don't want to learn about them at all. And and I think it's also important to think about like in a world where people can have wishes, the world still looks a lot like ours. And that's because of characters who don't care to interact with them or characters who don't believe in them or characters who can't afford them. And so I think... You know, you need to construct what makes that world tick and how how it how it can function that way. Um, so yeah, so I, I I suppose you know it, it is part of the world building, the kind of international layers to it. Um, but you only see it very much in the background of these characters, whereas I and then you have like these infographics in the middle that are I I call them an indulgence because I enjoy them. Although yes. okay. Uh- I, although mm. I'm going to argue that it, the sort of layering of the, you know, the wish abolitionist versus those who believe, because they believe that the being inside the wish is, is sentient and therefore it's wrong to use wishes versus um, Shukri's position, which is that, you know, which he got from his father, that you shouldn't use, wishes are religiously yes. impermissible. Um that 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 is an important part of um, and and Noor, who's the central character in the middle one, who is attending a university that seems very yes. much like AUC. <laughs> AUC <couldn't>. um, <laughs> um She's majoring in in this kind of philosophy of I can't remember what it was. It's a, so Noor and they're majoring in wishful thinking and philosophies. Which I feel like would be the name of, you know, wish studies in general. Um, and right. I, right. well, I would say it's, it's, you're absolutely right in that the, it, for Shokri's background specifically, you can kind of see it all come together. Like with someone like Aziza, Aziza has, has sort of grown up with wishes around, but has never cared for them because they don't really affect her immediate world. So Aziza sort of, a working class figure. She's the central character of part one. She's someone who doesn't cannot doesn't have the luxury to sit and think about the fantastical. Like she's very much concerned with her immediate surroundings. Um, and I think in part three, actually, the idea of like our wishes sentient or also our wishes malevolent. Like are they jinn? It kind of really only comes to play in part mm. three. And it's something that people might expect when they hear it's a story about like wishes because they've been waiting like, oh, where are the genies? Where is the djinn? Where is like the wishes, you know? And part three is definitely the one that leans into <laughs> the more magical aspects of it, which I kind of like because you need the setup of parts one and two to ground it so that part three can really like get there. Mm. Um, and actually, I think this world building... I mean, I'm I'm quite proud of it because I have seen people have the exact arguments that Shukri has in real life. Like, I have some of my friends who are like, um, well, not to spoil things, but I have my friends who are like, yes, of course, wishes are haram. 
and I have to be like they're not real <laughs> like they'll be like no but like obviously they're haram they're literally not real like <laughs> like we, we can't I don't know, but I feel like very strongly that I'm a wish abolitionist, yeah, actually. I would feel so the same. Maybe it's not real. I don't care, yes. Dina. But I still feel I took a strong political position. In yes, this, you feel in like, you, you know, that using wishes is kind of exploiting these creatures that are bottled, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, and I, I mean, do. That's a reasonable position to take. I also think Shukri's father's position is a reasonable position to take because as the kind of the book shows you that in the sort of 50s to 60s, the wishes that the global South got were all third class wishes. And so what the majority of people experienced Mm. was wishes that would mutilate people and trick them. So it's not really a surprise that they feel like wishes are evil. Um, And I think, you know, this is something as well that is really the background of this world. (laughs) Um, it's, I mean, again, I, I do feel like I got too indulgent thinking about all of this because for people who are listening, they're going to be like, where is this in the books? This is a very small part of the books. This is not what the books are about at all. <laughs> no, but, but, the, but the formal solution that you come up for with for it is actually very effective. So exactly all of this kind of like theoretical thought experiment kind of stuff which is what a lot of people do sort of start indulging in and wanting to know like having questions about well how does this work world work like if there's different qualities of wishes and they come from a certain part of the world how are they regulated how are they distributed and you and you basically insert between as you say these very narrative character grounded stories just these kind of like background charts and that provide a lot of this information in a very effective sort of like succinct way that that gives you sort of the technical documents for your imaginary world yes. and I think it works very well like it's not exposition it's not like characters stop in the middle of their lives and their and their adventures to sort of explain how everything's working I think you've come up with a very nice solution for sort of providing this information um in a way that's actually an entertaining and like all these questions that you've sort of built up as you read the stories then you kind of get answered a bit in these in these documents yes i think because as well uh, mix in yeah the first thing people always ask is like why not wish for world peace you know why not wish for this why not wish for that and so you really do have to address these things Mm. um because again it's a world where people can buy and sell wishes and so it it needs you know people immediately come to like the most obvious questions and so you have to have the answers for them but I also think it's just really fun to create alternate histories and it's really fun to put in timelines and I also think for Arabic speaking readers um, this was actually one of the great pulls of part one because a lot of people didn't expect a graphic novel to have that I think a lot of people were surprised by the thought that went into it Um, just purely because of the infographic I think we're used to a lot of very good dramatic and poignant stories and narratives in in Arabic, especially in Arabic literature, maybe less so in graphic novels, but there's still always, you know, very character driven graphic novels out there. Um, But it was the world building that had people really like a little taken aback because they, they don't often encounter such, you know, dedicated world building. Um, And Again, I think that just comes down to me kind of 
with with part one, I had no idea that I would be able to actually finish parts two and three. So it was more than of me being like, well, this is my only chance to tell people about this world I created. And I wanted to put it in, in the book somehow, in the back of the book, just to, to sort of... Um, because I really enjoy that kind of thing, right? Like when I read the book, I really love it when there's like an appendix at the back. It's like when you read a fantasy book and there's a map, it's like, you're like, yes, a map, you know? Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's like, I feel like it's really fun when graphic novels just have extra things. Um, and I, I wanted to... So wait, to, when, you were, yes. when you were writing the first one, you yes. only, you were just imagining it as a... I, so I wanted to know, like, yeah. did you know who Shalqaya was when you um, when you started writing the first one? I mean, how, to what extent did you have the trajectory mapped out versus I mean, sort of the, the world? Well, a lot of people don't realize this, but actually the first book starts with Shalqaya coughing. So Right, yeah. Like the very first thing she says is, <laughs> um, it was because I knew, I mean, this isn't a big spoiler, but I knew she was sick. Um, so I will say I had all three books planned out from the very, very, very beginning before I started drawing them. Okay. Um, but it was more that I just, I have a lot of ideas all the time. I just don't know how possible it will be to execute them. So for me, for part one, it 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 has gone through a lot of, evolutions of like the possibility of it existing originally it was like part of my graduation project and then it was a self-published book and then I added 30 pages and it was published to Dora Mahruso and then I added like another 30 pages and when I translated it to English um and all of it like you can kind of see me being like can I make a graphic novel oh I can make a graphic <laughs> novel oh I can make a graphic novel and do it well <laughs> oh I can now you know make a graphic novel I have more time and I can translate like all of it is just me sort of dealing with the practicalities of it existing like the mm. practicalities of the, almost the industry so part one really it honestly I, I i have a lot of sentimental feelings towards it because it really opened a lot of doors for me um and i i didn't i never thought like both me and dora mahrusa we never thought parts two and three would happen like every every time someone asks like do you have plans for part two and three i was like yeah i do I just have never seen anyone else in Egypt actually finish a graphic, like finish their plans, their comics plans. It, it's just, it's really hard. We all have big dreams, but you know, it's it was very time consuming and it's just the market isn't friendly. So at the time, I thought part one would be all I could do. And I, like my, the extent of my goals were just to have it on bookshelves. That was it. Mm. Like when I was talking so, to Goro you know, Matosa, so you... that was what we right. agreed on. Uh, and so what changed? Why were you able, I, I mean, these difficulties that you mentioned of, of, of the market and why, how were you able to overcome them? Was it just the response to the first part? Were there some other factors? No, the most important factor was the Cairo Comics Festival because I published, I self-published part one. I printed 100 copies for the Cairo Comics Festival in 2017. And at the time they had that prize and I applied for it and it won the prize. So when it won the prize, I think it changed a lot of things for me because um, winning the prize, first of all, had some interest and it made people more interested in it. I also sold out of the 100 copies like within two days. Um, and so those two things, as well as 
the award for the Cairo Comics Festival, which was a, tr a residency in France, which was like an extra three months of working on the comic. Those were all important factors, but the most important factor was that I got the translation deal after winning the Cairo Comics Festival. So a lot of people think the translation deal came after the Arabic, but actually the translation deal came before the Arabic was ever published. I essentially because I had been working on a webcomic that was bilingual before I started Shabik Lubik, I had been working on Kohero. And a lot of people kind of knew me because of Kohero. And one of the people who knew me was a professor called Shirin Hamdi. When she heard that Shabik Lubik had won the Cairo Comics Prize, uh, she said, oh, well, maybe you can send it to my agent. She might be interested in, in pitching it for you. Um, because the way publishing works in the United States is that you have to have an agent to represent you. You can't just like phone a publisher directly like you do in Egypt. Um, <laughs> so I sent it and, and her agent, and she was like, oh, yes. And my agent, by the way, she's the person who brought Persepolis into English. So I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like that was like the shift from like self-publishing at Cairo Comics to being like, yeah, let me just, you know, pitch to the editor who, who translated Persepolis was very sudden and very like, I, I honestly mm. did not think she would even read the book. I did like a quick translation of the Arabic one. I, I like translated it myself. I sent it to her and she was really she sent me like the nicest email in the world she she was so excited about it and she was really excited to represent me and I was like I think at that point I was like am I a comics artist <laughs> I had never like I had never considered myself a comics artist before that I had always considered comics kind of a hobby um and it was very very validating but also very suddenly like I felt like I had to step up um and so this agent, she got me the translation deal. And what she asked me was, do you have plans for the three books? And like I had been telling everyone else, I said, yes, I do. And she said, okay, well, if we're going to pitch it in English, if you want to get a big publisher, it might be better to pitch it as a bigger book as opposed to like a small, you know, like at the time, the, the Cairo Comics version was about 60 pages or 70 pages. Um, so I was like, okay, let, so we, we put together a proposal for parts one, two, and three together. And they already had like part one as, as like a sort of sample and we mailed that and Pantheon was interested. Well, Pantheon actually, the, the way they got interested, it's kind of a long story, but it's a good story if you'd like to hear it. Um, but mm -hmm. <laughs> they originally actually weren't interested. Um, they kind of sent back this response and it was Dan Frank. He was the editor at Pantheon. He's the editor of like Mouse. He's the editor of many, many huge graphic novels. Um, and he said, we think Dina's a terrific artist, which actually at this point, I had rarely heard people talk about my art because like for Kohira and even for Shubik Lubik, people mainly talked about the writing. So I was, I kind of mm. still a little like, oh, wow, he, he thinks my art is good. That was, that's cool. Um, but he, he actually didn't understand the book very well. He, he kind of felt like he didn't understand why Aziza or why Abdul would want a car. He didn't really understand Abdul and Aziz's relationship, which is very central to the first book. Um, and it felt like he had kind of given it a cursory reading. Um, and so Anjali was like, well, it's not, we had already had a different offer at the time. And Anjali is my agent, by the way. Um, and so Anjali said, you know, you can respond if you want, but I guess they're not interested. 
and I, being me, <laughs> I sent like an incredibly long email in response. I sent like maybe I think it was like a two thousand word email. Um, and I, I sort of broke down what he had said point by point, because some of the things he said were actually very correct, given my inexperience. But some of the things I felt were unfair, and it felt like he hadn't given them sort of a fair amount of thought. And so I said, you know, I, I am, you know, I'm happy to, to sort of I think this book could withstand this kind of scrutiny, but it needs to invite that scrutiny in the first place. And so you need to kind of have faith in, in the writer for that to happen. And I'm happy to bring it up to that level. But here's where I think, you know, you didn't notice these panels or this is what this panel means. And I was also, I also felt very strongly that the whole point of the book was about not questioning why someone would want this or why someone would want that. And that was something he had originally had a problem with. And the best part about it is actually that Dan Frank, he responded like immediately and he said, oh, you really put a lot of thought in this. I'm convinced. And he put in a really good offer. And I was like, oh, did I just like stand my ground and it worked? <laughs> I was like, I was, I don't usually like usually when I argue, I don't do it to win. You know, I just do it because it's like a compulsion. Um, but for me, is, it was... Yeah. It was so, it was actually something that made me very excited to work with him because I needed a perspective, this kind of outsider perspective. I already had Egyptian feedback and I was interested in the perspective of someone who completely didn't get the book at all and how they would read it because, you know, I wanted to reach a wide audience. Um, and I was also happy to work with someone I could have a conversation with, even though I felt like, you know, Dan Frank is kind of a legendary he was kind of a legendary comics editor. Um, so I was really, really like that whole interaction actually made me more excited to work with him. It's um, it's really interesting that you say that one of the ideas behind your book was that the that it was besides the point for to question why these people want the things they want. Because because yes, the yes. story and, and let me say as an aside that the art is phenomenal and I think everybody's going to see that from the panels oh, and also like there's I mean Marsha and I both lived in Egypt and know Egypt there is something like incredible about seeing it the, the streets and the faces and the places and the everyday objects and everything rendered like so vividly and accurately yes. and beautifully it's like it's like just it kind of gives you a shiver of like recognition um but but then I, I also, what stayed with me with the story for a long time afterwards was, of course, there's this idea often people wish for something and it doesn't turn out the way they expect. That's kind of like a classic trope mm. of the wish fulfillment. Yes, I really wanted to avoid that. Yes, yes. Well, you surprised me. Like every story, it's, sometimes that happens in one way or another, but not in the way I expected. And... I really thought for a long time afterwards about some of the decisions of some of the people and the things that they do or don't do with their wishes. Um, and there's a kind of real, like you really kind of mull it over. Um, it feels unpredictable the way human nature really is. Yeah. I'm glad it came out that way. I think a lot of wish stories kind of have the moral of be careful what you wish for. I think a lot of wish stories tend to, punish people for wanting things and so when I was thinking of the story I actually I wasn't thinking of wishes as as a, a moral lesson at all I didn't want anyone in the stories 
to regret their wish because it's a first class wish. It should give you exactly what you want. And I don't think people want things that are bad for them. I think, you know, um, I when I was thinking of the concept of wishes, I was thinking when I, I consider wishes in the same way people might consider prayers, right? So like when when do people use or when do people kind of pray the most? It's usually if they've just lost something or if they need something. And so that was the context that I, I thought of wishes in. Um, so I think <laughs> I think there there was definitely I, w- I was trying to approach it as much as possible in in a way that w- actually isn't related to folklore at all. <laughs> like I, I kind of wanted to completely disregard the legacy of wishes. I wanted to think of wishes um, in the sense of what matters the most is just what people want. Like what what are people wishing for these days? What do people need the most? Um, and that's sort of the central theme mm. of each part. Uh, and I think like I always like I think if you look at like part one, the main theme is loss, and part two, the main theme is happiness, and part three, the main themes are health. And I think these are all just very common themes in everyone's lives. There are things people want, and they're not things people should be punished for one thing, right? Like, it's not something where you can make a moral lesson out of it. It's not something that... It's Yeah, I did, I did, I really wanted it not to be, like, a be careful what you wish for situation at all. I, I really wanted to just think about, yeah, like, what 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 do people want? <laughs> if if wishes could actually be granted, right. who would get them? And some some people, have, although some people, right, of course, have better access to what they wish for. Some people have the resources to, just as in our regular, yeah, like, some people have the resources to wish for what they yeah. want, right? The people that Noor interviews, um, they they wished, you know, which I, I love that part yes. where Noor, they go around and they ask, um, people, you know, for their own wish experience yeah. as Nord is contemplating what to do with this um, super cheap first class wish that they came across. Yeah. Sort of asking people like, you know, because Nord is surrounded by people mm. who can actually buy first class wishes. So Nord just asks like their classmates, like, what have you used a first class wish before? So like, yeah, that, that kind of part. Um I'm I'm glad you like that section. <laughs> I, yeah, I and also, you know, all the character. I mean, there's so the wonderful sort of layer of an urban fantasy, of course, any urban fantasy is that you know, there's something that you can kind of map to to the world. And so so many of these wishes you can map to sort of I don't know, experiences in in life in Cairo, the like the wonderful billboards for donating to um the um yeah it was sort of maps and then of course my favorite is the compound dinosaur um because <laughs> because of course yeah. one does know about people keep cheetahs or whatever in their compound yeah i i think as well like it's just the idea of having like which is just kind of turning up like this sort of class dynamics up to mm. like a hundred because people can not only wish to live in a compound, they can wish to live in, you know, an invisible compound, and they can wish to live. Yeah, it's, it's there's there's really no limit, um, presumably except the law, and yeah, it was it was genuinely quite fun to think about, um, and <laughs> I would say again, I don't want to spoil too much, 
Um, but I, I think a lot of people really like just the invisible mm. compound. Yeah, it's funny um, because so because... there was like a there's a way in which it's the part two reminds me a little bit of Ahmed Khalid Tawfiq's Utopia, but 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 yes. so much like joy and lightness and um, sympathy uh, that that you know whereas Utopia is a really hard. <laughs> Like bad shit is happening constantly. I love Utopia in terms of its mm. its world building a lot. Actually, one of the things I did once is I created a sort of fake brand campaign oh. for Utopia. Right, right. Like the compound, um, because it was it, it was something I needed to get out of my system once, and I I saw all of these billboards for all these compounds. You can't really mm. escape them if you live in Cairo, and I thought you know a lot of them just sound like billboards. For a dystopian like dystopian novel compound and so I created like a whole branding campaign for Utopia as in the Utopian Ahmed Khalid Tawfiq's novel and I think he's really one of the people I thought of when I was world building this novel because I think he was one of the few Egyptian speculative fiction writers who who has really mm. compelling world building um but I I also like for me I think Utopia is a novel that has incredibly compelling world building, but never really dives into it because the story itself is is very dystopian and grim. Like it 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 has a point. I think Utopia is a story with a sort of it, it is a cautionary tale of some kind, um, and it's very like you said, it's very grim. Whereas Shubik Lubik, I think, is more of it's speculative fiction. It's not dystopian really. Um, I think the first part, a lot of people thought it would be dystopian because the the first part follows Aziz's story. And that was intentional because I do think depending on whose perspective you view the world from, it can seem either Mm. dystopian or not. Um, Whereas to me, I think Shubik really is just like an alternate universe. It's not particularly better or worse than ours. I think in some cases, maybe we've seen sort of like the most undrastic scenarios in which wishes are used. Um, but that's but that's partly the, the atmosphere I wanted to convey, is that often, like, in Egypt and also in other, plenty of other places, a lot of incredibly drastic things happen, but we take them in stride. Um, and that's mm-hmm. kind of how I wanted Shabik Lubik to feel. It's like just sort of like the sort of story where it, everyone just kind of, is living with it you know people are still experiencing joy people are still experiencing happiness people are still experiencing sadness everyone is is very human i didn't want the world to to supersede mm. the character i mean the the other thing uh, you have such tremendous sympathy for all of the characters and noor uh, who lives in a compound and is very wealthy is no less sympathetic than than you know than anybody else um and Mm. I actually this is see this is interesting to me because when I was writing Noor partly it was because I, I, I've always found the second part I think to be not the most um, not not different in a way but I think it is it is a part where I I was very conscious of the readership because with part one I ended up meeting like all of these 
sort of comics fans at like the comics festivals and, and bookstores and this and that. And I was seeing sort of the audience for Shubik Shubik and I, I felt very like, I don't know why, but I, I just really love them so much. Like all of these kind of fine arts students, the, the sort of arts community in Egypt and the kind of, not, I don't want to say the youth, but the youth. <laughs> um, and when I was writing part two, I was actually thinking of them because I think Noor is inherently a sort of, Noor can be a somewhat unlikable character. And I was aware of that. And I didn't really think about making them likable or unlikable. I was actually thinking of, I wanted Noor to sort of be a character who is an outsider completely. And so that any outsider could sort mm. of relate to them and empathize with them. But I also wanted Noor to have kind of every privilege so that it almost gives and and this is partly this is partly why I think this part is a little weak in this aspect. Um I wanted it to make people who are reading it feel like ah if if we can sympathize with Noor then I can sympathize with my own situation because Noor kind of has every privilege. They have no reason to feel this way or that way or this way or that way and it was it was kind of um I don't know. I I wanted people who were reading it to to feel like oh if I can empathize with this character then surely I can mm. empathize with myself that was kind of <laughs> that was kind of part of it I didn't know that they would necessarily empathize with Nord but rather that it would give them permission to be kinder to themselves in a way um yeah that's that's but lovely, I am Dina. well it's it's actually something I try to avoid so much because I I don't necessarily yeah, think right it is like slightly didactic in a way that you generally do yeah <laughs> it is didactic and I do think part of it is that I did feel a little bit of the responsibility of just having I think that this community in Egypt and I did feel the responsibility of people reading about a topic that might not be addressed that much and I think that's also why I tried to make the depictions of like therapy as realistic as possible just because I kind of knew it would resonate with readers in a certain way. And I think because it was the second part and it's in the middle, I I kind of figured I could get away with this just slightly more didactic thing. It's not a big part of Noor's journey. Ultimately, it doesn't really affect the storyline itself. But I think it comes out in sort of the treatment of this character. I don't think... I don't think actually to me, I was worried Noor would be too unsympathetic. And I think some readers did find Noor to be alienating or did find mm. Noor to be very strange. But it's sort of a it's sort of a character where if you get it, you get it, you mm. know? And I think it it sort of resonated with certain people more than others. And I'm I'm okay with kind of making that sacrifice. Just given that like I love the comics community in Egypt so much and it's a demographic that I really care about. Mm. So I'm sort of willing to to sacrifice the literary quality of the book just for that. Um but it's yeah, so it's it's a compromise I made and it's it's something I'm very aware of <laughs> and I probably won't do again in that same way. Mm. But I don't think it really made a difference to the character overall. I think it's it's definitely something that's an undercurrent. I think some people can feel it and some people can't. Mm. I mean, I really, I, 
I did care about Noor a lot as a character. And part of that mm. was that I, I really hated that first therapist so much. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think it was very useful to put in that sort of bad guy character in, in there. No, I was just going to say, I did have more, I mean, I, 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 I think there's some quite a few interesting things about this middle section and this middle character. One is that it's not, again, it's not quite what you expect. Like the first story is a very dramatic story um, with a sort of, with someone who accesses a wish and then is the victim of an injustice because of having the wish. And it is also, as you say, trying to repair this like loss in her life. And again, without giving too much away, it is a, it is a it is a dramatic story and also about somebody who does not have privilege or power in the world and 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 then gets gets a wish a first class wish and then you find yourself in the second story which is a story about someone who you know seemingly has everything that um, you know all the advantages in the world and is unable to be happy which is a very common condition is is sort of is suffering is suffering from what seems like a form of depression and anxiety and and and, and it's not that I found the character unsympathetic but his the situation which goes on for quite a long time like you also feel this kind of like almost dragging on of her going in circles and back and forth and up and down, which I think is like true to the experience. But I, I did feel a certain amount of frustration, which I think is what the character feels, what people around the character feel like you feel empathy, but you also, and, and the character is harder on themselves than, than you are as a reader, which is like, why, why can't she just get over it? Why can't she use the wish somehow? Why can't she find a solution? You really do have that experience of like, how is this ever going to get resolved? Like, like Mm. I'm, I'm miserable seeing this person's misery. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's hard to witness kind of. And I think it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's rendered quite well. And then you have some very original sort of graphic ways of, of rendering it. Um, But it's not the story I, I expected. Certainly it, it sort of came to as a complete surprise to me that that was the, it's a departure. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the way I conceptualize it is that the first story, it feels like it's a very external story. You watch things happen to Aziza. So basically Aziza is kind of a character that is the victim of bureaucracy. Things keep happening to Aziza. And you never see inside inside Aziza's head because if you did, then the entire story would be ruined. Um and so it's an external story, but in the end, you find out the only thing that mattered was what that character wanted the whole time. Whereas Nuno's story is completely the opposite. You're in that character's head the whole time. And then at the end, you're sort of realizing it is also sort of more external forces that were affecting this character's mental state. Um, and so they're, they're very much inverse stories. They're two mirror stories. Even the way that Nur um, buys their wish is indirect opposition to how Aziza gets their, her wish and so I, mm-hmm. I very much conceptualize these two stories to be inversions of each other because I wanted to show how wishes work in this world between classes and then the third story is kind of a combination of both it's external and it's internal you get a much more overall and kind of like fleshed mm-hmm. out view of this whole world and that's why I think you need the first two stories in order to get to part three um 
But I will say with Noor's part, I was very much, actually, I was just thinking about the concept of happiness because I think it's the most common thing people wish for. And I was thinking, you know, who needs happiness the most? Obviously, it would be someone who is depressed. And I was thinking of the people who tend to be depressed are people who are outsiders to society in some way. Um, and so that was kind of the conceptualization of Noor's character. And I think that's why it it is. I think it's it's surprising if you think of it from the perspective of part one being such a bureaucratic and sort of kind of semi-dystopian sort of uh I've heard it described as Kafkaesque um and then part two it's like this you know segue into someone's mind and but it makes sense if you think of it in the sense of like well what do people wish for you know after loss for happiness so in that way it seemed very obvious to me, <laughs> like when I was thinking of it. But I understand why people who are reading it might feel surprised. And I also understand the frustration with Noor's character, but it's very much the feeling I wanted to convey, like this frustration of like, why can't you just do this? Why can't you just do this? Like this endless cycles of of sort of being depressed and, and self-hating and, and these kind of things. And it's also because it it is a... it's um. I, f- I forgot what it's called, but uh, like a mm-hmm. catch-22, is that the word? But essentially, it's like you, you have this wish, but you're so depressed, mm. you believe you don't deserve happiness. And so it's like an endless cycle of like, <laughs> do I deserve to wish for happiness? Do I not deserve to wish for happiness? Um, and is wishing for happiness what I actually want? Will it cure my depression? It, it, it's, it's like I said, it's a very internalized story. Um and I, I was I was very much thinking of it in terms of like who needs happiness, who wants happiness, who would be the kind of person to buy a first class wish for happiness. Because you in this story wishes have weight, like they have they cost money, they have an actual mm. material value. And so like it's like would you actually pay a million dollars to cure your depression? I think a lot of people would actually. I think if you're depressed enough, you would absolutely do that and I think it would be very common. Um, but I also think, but for Noor, it was not that expensive. Noor exactly, didn't exactly, and that's expensive. why they have so much guilt over it because it's like, well, someone hmm. else could just use this better than me, and you know, why am I the person right, to do this? Right. But also, part of it is the reason they're able to buy it at a discount is that they could not actually afford to buy it if it wasn't at a discount because they haven't told anyone about their problems. So it's part of it. It's hmm. also a story where Noor, unlike Actually, all of these stories, except in part three, the characters are going through their journeys alone. They don't really have anyone to share it with. In Noor's story, you get the graphs, and the graphs are kind of what explain their internal state. And maybe in one scene, they talk to a therapist. But for the most part, they kind of suffer through this alone. Um, And I think this was partly Mm. as well... My understanding of the people reading this, I think, would also feel much the same way. A lot of them cannot share what's happening because it's not common to talk about depression in Egypt. And even when it is, a lot of Egyptians just aren't inclined to sincerely talk about their problems. Like we we don't have the vocabulary for it. And we also like in the middle of everything that's going on to focus on your own mental state. It just feels so silly. And that's what I mean about that little didactic side coming out of me again. It was like really just for the people reading it to to see the most extreme scenario and sort of mm. 
relate to it back to themselves. And I, I do, I do appreciate how it worked. I, I really do think like, I, I try to strike a balance between this, this sense of being overly informative or like overly, um, like you said, like overly sympathetic or overly this or that. And I will say, actually, you might notice in the Arabic version, Noon never actually gets quite as drastic as they do in the English version. And that's partly because I had this fear mm. of the people reading it. Um, maybe not not necessarily being triggered, but I think I didn't want it to feel too nihilistic. I wanted it to be a sort of like a warm hug kind of book. Um, which is not to say that I don't mm. care about my English audience, but because the English speaking audience, first of all, they have access to more resources. And also they have like the third part is right after it. So they're not really in the middle of this book kind of lost. So with the third, like with the English translation of part two, you might notice that it becomes quite clear at some point, the choice of wish is to wish just to wish to stop existing, because I think this is also something a lot of depressed people would use wishes for. I wish to yeah. like stop existing and to never have existed. And that kind of like the choice between this or that becomes much more um, clarified in the English version because in the Arabic, it was never really stressed, I would say. So let me, um, <laughs> or it was mentioned like once in the, in the English. Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I've been, I've been talking about no, this topic. So since you, since, no, 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 that's fine. That's no, that's that's this is all very interesting. But since you brought up the question of the two versions, and I do think this is going to have to be maybe our our last question, I want to ask you about the translation process. So you you translated the book yourself? I did. <laughs> okay, and so I want to ask you about. I mean, there's a choice, of course, of the book going from right to left. There's a choice to leaving the title. Um, in in Arabic rather than trying to find an English language expression. I just wanted to ask you a bit about, uh, I mean, it reads beautifully, but sort of about the translation process and some of the decisions that you made. Yeah. So, well, first of all, with the title, actually, this was Pantheon's decision. They were very, like, passionate about keeping the Arabic title. They really loved it. I was, personally, I was like, I don't, I mean, to me in Arabic, it's very catchy. In English, it's just a word. It's a big, big, like it's, it doesn't feel the same, doesn't have the same impact as it does in Arabic. But I'm also happy. If you were going to translate it, what, what would it well, be? Well, I, I never came up with anything better. So that's why I was like, okay, we, we can keep it. Like, I'm, I'm happy that they felt so strongly about it because I think it helped me. It's always been big, big to me anyway. So I, I was happy with that decision. Actually, the UK version is just called Your Wish is My Command, which is the direct translation of big big. And honestly, I don't think that's a very catchy title. <laughs> like, I was always like, that's so long. How are people mm. going to be like, have you read Your Wish is My Command? I'll be like, yeah, I read Your Wish is My Command. It was really good. I enjoyed Your Wish is My Command. Like, it's so long. It's, it's like a full-out boy song. But I think, you know, it's it's fine. I The thing about translations to me is that I'm not super... I'm not precious about how things translate in a sense because... I accept that translations are always inherently transformations of something. Um, and maybe it's because like I consume a lot of translated content myself and I've always been very forgiving of like bad titles. Um, especially when, if you consume like a lot of anime, a lot of K dramas, you just kind mm. of accept a bad mm. title. <laughs> yes. Um, and I don't, so I don't think 
So Big to Big is the worst title. I think it's pretty it's it's pretty solid and I'd be excited for English speaking readers to learn that phrase because it's so central to wishes in Arabic. Um and it's it's sort of explained at the beginning of the book too. But for the translation, so my approach to the translation is I was thinking of the kind of translations I like to read. And I like translations where you can feel the hand of the translator. I don't, again, I'm very, I'm actually really nervous about real translators reading this. Um, because I approached it like a fan translator. I, I approached it like a scandation. <laughs> um, and it's like kind of like how fans translate manga for, for you know, foreign readers. And there's always a sense of, explanation to it there's a sense of implicit understanding that what you're reading has been translated it's not like that feeling of like it's not mm. a professional translation it's not polished you never have the sense of like this could have been originally written in english and i think i really like this because i think with shabik it was always created for an egyptian audience first and foremost and it, it's so egyptian it's so egyptian because i wanted to appeal to the Egyptian readership. A lot of the decisions were made specifically for like the Egyptian comics market. A lot of decisions were made to just widen the gap of who reads graphic novels a little bit more. And with the translation, I think I wanted it to feel like it was made for Egyptians too. Like I didn't want people to think it might have originally been written mm. in English. Um, I wanted them to feel like they were kind of reading something they're being guided through. And so the translation is almost like I use the narrator. The narrator exists in Arabic. And in English, I expanded the narrator's role to a translator's role. So in English, the narrator is also... Yeah, I, I really felt that the, the translator was a, became a character, yes, like a full-fledged yes, yes. character. This was, yeah, this was something I was a little nervous about because it's quite a big transition from the Arabic. But I also wanted... So here's the thing. With the experience of reading it in Arabic, I think there are certain places where I don't want readers to pause. You know, there are certain things that an Arabic-speaking reader just understands because they're, they're things they are familiar with. And I was thinking, uh, with an English-speaking readership, well, with comics especially, you tend to focus on clarity more than anything. And there were places where I just didn't want an English-speaking readership to pause or feel confused. And that's when I used the translator to explain something. Because I just felt like if an Arabic-speaking mm. reader understood this, then an English-speaking reader should understand it too. And it might ruin the sort of flow of things, but I prefer clarity in that aspect. Because um, I don't know how to put it, but for me personally, when I'm reading something that's translated, I really love translator's notes. <laughs> I just enjoy them so much. I love learning new hmm. things. And I, I love it when I can understand the context behind the sentence. I love learning phrases from countries. I just think it's a richer experience overall, even if it makes me pause for a second. Um, at least I haven't paused because I've been lied to by a translator, right? Like I haven't paused because the translator just tried to figure out the closest possible idiom. So if it's a situation where I feel like the translation is getting a little clunky or this is like almost an untranslatable phrase. I will just use a footnote. Like I, I really went for the most <laughs> kind of simple solution, but it's a graphic novel, right? Like it, it should be accessible. I don't, I don't want my graphic novel. It's, it's already quite heavy in terms of theme. 
it's quite heavy in terms of like construction and plot. So I don't want it to be even more confusing. I think one lesson I learned from publishing it in Arabic is that if someone doesn't understand something that should be easily understood, it really bothers me. It makes me feel like I failed as a creator. And so for the English, I kind of had no problem treating the reader like as a tourist taking a tour guide through the book or like a guided tour, I would say, um, because it... Mm. I mean, yeah, I think the reason the footnotes work is because they have personality. Mm. I think if you were just explaining things, if you if somebody else had translated it, for yes. instance, or the publisher were adding footnotes, I think it would feel obnoxious and exoticizing. Yes. But if it, since it's you who's taking us on a tour, it's different. And in a tone of an aside, of a parenthetical, of a like, hey, by the way, like it's the informality of the tone, like you say, that makes it like really all actually part of the story because it's a storytelling voice, even in the footnotes, even in the asides, in the explanations. Yes. So, yeah, I think that is why it's... I was also um, thinking of like people's rationale behind not using footnotes. So I've been, I read a little bit about translation thanks to your blogs and stuff <laughs> like I, I had been I looked into it briefly and I was looking into it because I was also looking into like people who are talking about italicization italicization versus mm. not italicization and like the idea of including foreign phrases in a book and whether you would translate them or not and things like that and I reached the conclusion that I don't need to worry about this because my book is not in English <laughs> like it's because a lot of the decisions being made on the inclusion of foreign words were being made by authors who were primarily writing for an English-speaking audience. But I had never been doing that. So to me, I had no problem with the English-speaking audience feeling like they were being translated to. Like, I don't know. I don't know quite how to explain it, but I guess I, I sort of tried to put myself in the position of someone reading something from a completely foreign culture um, because I often have been in that position. And mm, so mm. I was just kind of thinking of, of what I enjoy the most, what I'm likely to look up by myself and what I might not, might not look up by myself. I didn't really feel like the reader should know more about Egyptian culture. Like, I don't think they have that responsibility. Um, and so I think that just eased a lot of my troubles, but I also am so curious as to what professional translators would have to say about this approach. No, I mean, um, listen. So I don't know. What did you guys feel about it? I love this approach as a, as a solution. I don't think you can do it if you're translating somebody else's work. That's probably true. I think it only works as a self trans a strategy of self-translation. Uh, yeah, and I think self-translation yeah, is also I very hard. <laughs> it's... Yes, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think what you, the solution that you use in translating is very specific to each work and each situation. So there isn't like a, a, a rule. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a craft. It's, it's, it's specific to each work. And like Marsha says, I think this, this works absolutely well in this, in this case, in these circumstances. Um. Yeah, I think also, So I sorry, one thing I, I wanted to say yeah. is that the book actually doesn't mention that I translated it. Like, it just says my name on the cover. <laughs> it doesn't really say that I wrote, illustrated, and translated it. 
So I think it's good that it kind of has the, like, the end notes say that the book was originally in Arabic. So I do mm. feel like it's good that people will know it wasn't originally in English, and that will explain a lot of, like, the the footnotes and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I realize it never yep, yep. officially says, like, uh, translated by Dina Muhammad or anything. Well, it does say translation copyright 2022, Dina Muhammad. Oh, like on the on the jacket <laughs> that read, no one reads? Like the... If you read the, uh, the ISBN page, yes, yeah. Yes. Well, in a way, it's almost like you rewrote it in English. I don't know. It's a particular case. It is it? a very particular um, case. I was really looking for like any resources that could help. And it's close to impossible to find other people who have self-translated graphic novels. And when they have, it's usually from like French mm. to English or like, you know, same directions. It's a lot, it's a lot more webcomic artists do that um, because, you know, webcomic artists kind of have to do everything themselves, just like everyone else. And, you know, with webcomic artists, there's also this sense of like informality and making it up as you go along. So it was definitely something that I was I was really navigating. Like, is this OK? Like, no one's telling me this isn't OK. I don't I I hope it's okay. Like that was the feeling I was having as I was going through it. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's very okay. It's your I book, think it's so a, you get to decide. It's a it's a really it's a lovely work. Uh, like Marcia said, it's almost too bad that it's not going to be available before Christmas. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, but everybody can catch up in the in the new year, and um, they can also pre-order we'll be sharing. Ah, there you go. Okay, we'll put we'll put links to that in the show notes. We'll put links to some whatever uh, parts of the panels are available. Um, it's 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 really lovely, and um, and thank you again so much, you know, for coming and taking the time to talk to us about it. It was really interesting to hear about sort of a lot of the process that went into this and into this incredibly. It really does read as like so much thought and feeling went into it uh so much like detail and experience well thank you so much no no that's absolutely fine and so thanks again goodbye goodbye to both of you and goodbye to our listeners for this episode yes thank you dina 